Well, I do love how the Holy Spirit works. I was on vacation last week, out for about 10 days, and during that time, Robert was doing a short sermon series for a couple of weeks on the Lord's Prayer. Now, I was in a different country, eight hours away. I had no idea, I was paying no attention, sorry, Robert, to what he was doing. That's <laughs> what you're supposed to do on vacation. But I thought on the long flight back home, I might just take a quick look at what the scripture was because I knew I would be preaching this weekend. Now, most of the time we preach from the lectionary, which some of you may know is a a list of readings spelled out every week over a three-year period. And in theory, every church in the world could be preaching and teaching from the same readings. But Robert went off book for the last couple of weeks and uh, used some different scripture readings, which is totally allowed. But imagine my surprise and how awesome it is that the lectionary just happened to be this week on the power of prayer. So I started thinking that I figure God really wants Snowmass Chapel to hear about prayer. Either that, he wants all of you to hear it, or he wants Robert and me to hear it. (laughs) And I think it could be the latter. As I read through this reading today, I... uh, think that the judge in this story is really a piece of work. He has a lot of chutzpah, as my mom used to say. He says, though I don't even care less, I could care less about God and even less about people, but just so this woman will quit badgering me, I'll give her what she wants. He just kind of tells it like it is. I don't even like you people. You're killing me over here, but please, can we just get, go away? And I know you've probably felt like that a time or two. All right, already, I'll give you what you want. Just stop pestering me, said every parent of every toddler ever. (laughs) But really, for a judge who was supposed to deliver justice to his people in a compassionate way, from a place of clear-headedness and thoughtfulness and intellect, For him to just straight up acknowledge his disdain for people and for God and remember that it was thought that judges were chosen by God to deliver justice to God's people, it just shows an arrogant callousness, not to mention, albeit, some pretty good self-awareness. And then the widows, of course, had a special place and special significance from the very beginning of Jewish times all the way through the New Testament, widows represented the most vulnerable in the community. Without a husband, the widows would have nothing, no estate, no money. All of their assets upon the death of their husband would have gone to the husband's brothers or to the husband's sons, who of course were supposed to take care of the women But as we know, that's not always the case, even today. The most vulnerable among us are often not protected. They're often overlooked, sometimes taken advantage of, even abused. So I think Jesus is asking us to consider the perspective of the widow and also to consider where in our own lives we might be showing up as the callous judge. But interestingly enough, though the very first sentence in today's reading leaves no question what this parable is about, to pray always and not lose heart, 
I think the meat of the scripture is actually in the final unanswered question. At the end of the reading here, Jesus asks two rhetorical questions, which he immediately answers for us, and a third question, which he doesn't answer. Jesus says, look, if this judge doesn't care about you at all, but yet will eventually grant you what you want, he asks, will God who loves you not grant justice for you? Yes, he answers. And will he do it quickly? Yes, Jesus says. And then he asks this, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And that's it. He doesn't answer it. He leaves us hanging right there. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? He doesn't answer it because only we can. And the tendency with this last line of the parable is to simply move past it. Jesus has already told us the point right up front. So let's just move on. But I got stuck there this week. I kept coming back to that line. What does his unanswered question have to do with the two questions that he answered affirmatively for us? What does the question of faith have to do with the callous judge, with the persistent widow? Why does Jesus end this parable about prayer with a comment about faith? And by the way, why does Jesus' parables always seem to leave me with more questions than answers? These are the things that kept coming up for me. As a staff, we recently underwent an exercise identifying our personal values. We use the work of Brene Brown in her new book called Dare to Lead. And one of my top two values was faith. And you'll be interested to know one of Robert's top two values was faith also, if I could just disclose one of his. I thought, you know, it's, it's good to know that your senior leadership here is steeped in faith. That's good. But after identifying your top two values, Brene Brown says, ask yourself a set of questions. And by the way, it is no easy task to narrow your values down to two. There are so many. Everything begins to sound good. It's a challenging task. But once you do it, she says, narrow it down to those two and then ask yourself two sets of questions. First of all, she says, how do you see yourself living into those values? What are the behaviors that support the value you say you hold? So for me, that was relatively easy. I love being a student of Jesus and of theology and of biblical history, and that keeps me pretty well steeped in my faith, even though I'll admit it does call up a few questions from time to time. The second way that I see myself living into my faith is really important to me, and it's that I let my faith drive many of my decisions. It's just part of my core to believe that all will be well, even in the face of challenges and adversity. And lastly, I see myself living out this value because my love and my life and my work are all aligned around it, and there's a synchronicity and a balance there. Okay, the second set of questions, though, that Brene asked in her book is that once you've identified the two values and answered those first three questions, now 
Identify ways in which you get in your own way. Or as Brene says, what are your slippery behaviors in trying to live into your values? So that takes some introspection. And interestingly enough, in light of today's scripture reading, the top way that I get in my own way in living out my value of faith is by being inattentive to my prayer life. Sometimes I get busy, I get out of my routine, I get interrupted, I don't prioritize the time, but instead I do what I call praying on the fly. I know some of you have felt that way. I take small comfort in knowing that I'm not alone in that. But yet I know that prayer is essential to staying in faith. And besides that, studies have shown that it's good for us, that prayer, in fact, has a positive effect on the brain. And when we're stressed, it allows us to sort of self-soothe in a way. When we're out of ideas or we're at our wit's end about something, prayer has the power to calm us even in the darkest times. So for me, paying attention to my prayer life is critical. It keeps me grounded in that value of faith. It keeps me mindful that God always keeps God's promises, that God is faithful and trustworthy. Prayer keeps me hopeful and not despairing. But it's not always easy. In today's reading, Jesus says God will not delay in helping us. But our humble human understanding of time is not quite the same as the Almighty's. The great preacher Fred Craddock once wrote that our prayers for the things we deeply need are often met with long periods of silence from God. Prayer is hard work because the human experience is often an experience of waiting. And then he wrote that when we pray without ceasing, we are being hammered through long days and nights into a vessel that will be able to hold the answer when it comes. I love that image. Patience. So, what takes you out of faith? I think it's critical for us to examine that. For us to understand so that when it happens, not if, but when, we are better equipped to face it head on. Acknowledge that that's where we're at. Examine it. Self-correct if possible. Get some guidance. One of the leading voices in the church today and one of my theological go-to authors became famous, if you will, with a book titled Faith Unraveled. Think about that. One of the most prominent voices in the 21st century today is a millennial skeptic who writes about how the faith of her childhood slowly unraveled and left her asking questions that she always believed had concrete answers. If you grew up in the era of Billy Graham or Martin Luther King Jr. or writers like C.S. Lewis or Philip Yancey or any number of powerhouse preachers and teachers and writers, it might seem odd to you that such an influential writer today writes from a place of uncertainty. But then again, I think especially our young people are growing up 
in such an uncertain world that it makes sense that a millennial might not take faith at face value. So when this writer, Rachel Held Evans, heard a professor announce to her university student body one time, you can believe the Bible or you can believe evolution, but you can't believe both. You have to choose. Here's what she wrote in response. That recurring choice between faith and science, Christianity and feminism, the Bible and historical criticism, doctrine and compassion, kept tripping me up like roots on a forest trail. I wanted to believe, of course, but I wanted to believe with my intellectual integrity and intuition intact. With both my head and my heart fully engaged, the more I was asked to choose, the more fragmented and frayed my faith became. The more it stretched, the gossamer of belief that held my worldview together. And that's when the real doubt crept in like an invasive species, she says. But the thing is that Rachel continued to doggedly pursue Jesus and the church, all the while documenting her crisis of faith. I think she and countless others is like the persistent widow. She just never, ever gave up. In her books, she goes to great lengths and depths about her journey, uncovering every nook and cranny in an effort to make sense of Christ in the modern world, to make sense of biblical stories as biblical truth, to carve out her own spiritual path in the face of a religion that she loved, but which sometimes came across as harsh and judgmental and exclusionary and self-serving, none of which describes the world that Jesus wants for us. And what's important to me about her journey is that even when she acknowledged that her religion wasn't working for her, she relentlessly pursued faith. She didn't always have it by her own admission, but she never gave up on it. So maybe, like me, you just get busy and you allow yourself to be taken away from the exercises and the practices of your faith. Or maybe you're like Rachel, where your safe, tidy answers to religion have been sort of toppled over by life. Maybe you're searching for answers about church and sexuality, about abuse and suffering, about social justice or social concerns. Maybe you're at a loss how to put your faith into meaningful action. Well, good news, you are seen. You are not alone and you are so, so loved. Because our faith is a journey. Sometimes we're in deep, sometimes we're back in the shallows. And sometimes some of us are out of the water altogether, off in a corner, towel drying off somewhere for a while. And that's okay. But Jesus is asking us today, are you willing to get back in? Are you willing to stay in faith? To do as the Apostle Paul says, to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. God will protect you. God has a long history of guiding, protecting, and vindicating, and saving God's people. 
Will God not protect you? Yes. Will God not delay? Of course not. But will you have faith? For me, faith is the belief that there is something larger at work in the universe. That force is God, and God is love, and love is always going to show up in ways that are for our best, highest good, period. God is love. God can't help but show up in loving ways for us. And neither can we when we follow that path. If we are truly going to stay in faith, then our work needs to be showing up for others in the world in love. Our faith is made evident not by memorizing Bible verses or showing up at church every Sunday or with our thoughts and prayers, even though all of that is important and lovely and meaningful. But here's how God says we should put our faith into action. It's in Isaiah 58, and God says, here's what true worship looks like. Break the chains of injustice. Get rid of exploitation. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. Share your bread with the hungry. Invite the homeless and the poor into your house. Clothe the naked. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what our faith looks like. Calling for justice for those who need it. Helping those in need. Forgiveness. And as followers of Jesus, we are asked to persistently pursue these things in prayer. Not on our own behalf, but on behalf of those in need. Which means our prayer lives should be a lot less about looking out for number one and a lot more about looking out for the widows and the orphans and the homeless and the children and those on the margins whom society has a tendency to ignore. And when we do something beautiful, even mysterious, happens when we pray. Of course there's a desire to change the circumstances, but prayer is about the prayer, the one who is being shaped by the prayer. Maybe part of our problem is that we people are feeling disconnected from religious institutions. Part of the reason that so many claim to be spiritual but not religious is that we've lost touch with those behavioral expressions of our faith. Five times a day, Muslims drop to their knees and pray. Buddhists and Catholics and others have prayer beads that give them a meditational opportunity throughout their day. The nuns, in O-N-E, not N-U-N, those who are asked when they, what denomination they are, what religion they are, check the box, none. The nuns, many of them have a spiritual work of loving neighbor, welcoming strangers, attending to the poor, feeding the hungry, working for justice. These are the things that we as Christ followers are called to, along with fasting, studying scripture, prayer. Jesus calls for persistence in these behaviors because I think he knows we need it. Without that meat of our faith, I think we can become a bit anemic. 
But I want you to note that Jesus calls for persistence, not perfection. Over your lifetime, your faith journey will look a lot more like a labyrinth than a straight path. At times you might wonder if you're lost. You'll turn a corner and think, well, that looks familiar, and then realize you've actually never been in that place before. There will be times that you're calm and thoughtful, and other times that you're anxious and agitated. But you keep moving forward, persistently pursuing the one thing that matters, the kingdom of earth on heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Because one day, the Son of Man will come, and he will ask, is there any faith? And you will be able to answer, yes, Lord, here. That is my prayer for us today. And I ask you to join me in a moment of prayer.